Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Brian Koppelman, the co-creator and executive producer of Billions and other well-known films like Rounders and Ocean's 13. Welcome, Brian. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm so glad you're doing this. You know, the first time you and I met, we were talking about what it meant to do a, p- a podcast because that's the other way people who listen to podcasts know me clearly is because of my podcast at the moment. And um, and it's great. I see how prepared you are, all your research. I'm, I'm really psyched that you're doing it. I, I need to point out um, all that stuff I do with my lifelong best friend and creative partner, David Levine. So I didn't create billions myself, but the two of us do all this work together. You yeah. had a little bit of a little bit of impact. And we on co-created it Absolutely. with Andrew and and um, Dave and I run the show together. Yeah, amazing. Well, again, thank you. And I, you know, doing my research, getting ready for this. Even though we have very different backgrounds, I found that your story, your journey, brought up so many questions for me, and found myself really relating to some of your past struggles, and also very impressed by the habits you've acquired over the years as a result of searching and questioning. And, and finding yourself, and you've obviously spent a lot of time reflecting and on self-discovery. One moment that really I kept coming back to and thinking about was like this realization that you were an artist. And, and I know it's something that people kind of wonder what that life is like, like the life of a creative and how you, how you know. And can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, and I think it's really, um, it's worth talking about and, and worth talking about not necessarily because of anything having to do with me, but because what I've discovered walking through this life is that when any of us are working from our most creative place, um, we have a chance at a kind of fulfillment that's not really offered to us many other ways. That doesn't mean you have to live a life of a creative. What I'm talking about is getting to the place where you force yourself to face the fear of failure that comes with risking showing who you really are in your work. Um, And that can be, uh, paralegal can be, you know, take those kinds of risks to get the most out of themselves and um, a ballerina can, right? So, and the reason I think it's really important is the, the part of it that touches me personally is that when I was 29, 30 years old, Amy and I had our first child, and I had a very distinct moment of realization that I wanted to be the kind of father who would come home and tell his children to live the life that they wanted to live. And I, as I had that thought, I had the thought that I was not doing that. I had a fairly successful career in music, as you said, but I had picked up some bad habits. I had never been a smoker. I I literally got through all my teenage years and early 20s without ever smoking a cigarette. I'd gone to law school at night, and while going to law school at night, some buddies of mine, when they would study, were smoking. I started smoking, and so I, for one year, I smoked cigarettes, and this was during that period of time, and I was sitting in my office, and I was, like, eating a bacon cheeseburger late at night, smoking a cigarette, and realized this isn't who I am, and... And realized that if I didn't find a way to break through what I was, you know, the idea of being an artist was so scary to me. The idea of being a writer, a creator, be was terrifying, right? Because the thought of failing at it, the thought of not being good, the thought of trying to put 
sort of the part of myself that was hidden away and protected because I thought it might, there was a chance that it might have something novel to say. You know, what if it, what if I tried that and then that got squashed? Um, And so my whole life, like if I was, I, I had a very hard time finishing things. I would start, I would have ideas, I would write in the middle of the night. But this was the moment that I looked at myself and said, uh, you know, this isn't just for you now. This is, you know, if you don't do this, if you allow yourself to be blocked, these impulses will die. And if they die, it's like any other kind of death. It'll have toxicity. And that toxicity will leach out into those you love. And I felt myself potentially becoming a bitter man, the kind of person who would come home and allow that bitterness to affect the way that he dealt with uh, the people who mattered the most to him. And it was that realization that led me to take the risk of trying to be someone who created something every day. Now, I, I'm sure you have other questions about it, but I'll say I had a lot of privilege that allowed me to do that. You know, I, I, was, I was raised at a time in America when being male, uh, I didn't have college debt, so um, I didn't have to worry about paying off loans. Um, I was a white person at a time when being a white person made all this stuff very much easier than it would be for anybody else. And there are countless other advantages that I had for sure. But mostly, I, I realized a few things. One, I wouldn't quit my job because that would put too much pressure, but that I would take some kind of action every single day. And I would work with rigor to try to do this. And I went to my best friend, David, and that's why I always make sure that I, I say we're true creative partners and have been for over 20 years. And together we decided to, to go on this pursuit and try to write something. And, um, you know, it led to the life that I'm able to live now. And I remember from another podcast I listened to you on that you said something that, that surprised me because I think while a lot of Olympians and athletes kind of follow their dream, we do it from the age of four or five or six, and we yes. don't really know better at the time. We just, we love what we're doing. We want to do it every day, and we're just so engrossed in what it is. And I think later in life, when you're you're forced to retire because you're too old or you get injured, and then all of a sudden you have a fresh slate at, at 25, it's in some ways exciting, but in, in more ways it's intimidating. And, and all you see is that you're not good at anything. You're not prepared. And there's just failure waiting for you everywhere. And yeah, and you're, you're someone who's fought against failure so hard. Failure's not acceptable. And you're leaving a pinnacle. And you're, you're just like, you're coming down as a tadpole in the ocean. Yeah, it's brutally difficult. I, you know, I, I, one of the things that I put together in my head and that I say to people is, Often we all get, and Olympians don't do this. This is a great thing about being someone who's become so incredibly proficient at something so hard. But many people think like, oh, well, if I have the dream, that's the important part. To me, and I, I know you've heard me say this before, but it's like once you have this dream, and, it, and to make it more than a dream, you just have to work with an absurd amount of rigor at achieving it. You have to work every day, and you have to nobody gets away free. So I had all these advantages stacked, but I still had tons of sacrifice I had to make, tons of things I had to say no to, uh, including, you know, my own fears, but my own desire to not have to show up every morning before work and fail at writing. And, um, and also having really no life other than my job and then the work I was trying to do. But the best thing is, and I know you know this as uh, a world-class athlete, 
an elite world-class athlete is the moment you start working with rigor and you repeat it and then you stack the weeks. If you really are doing that and, and you're not, you're not doing it frivolously or casually, like you're really doing it in a focused, committed, checking in on the progress kind of a way. Within just a few weeks, you start to feel all better because you're on the path. And so the result, you know, I, I don't really dig when people say the only thing that matters is process. That's not true. But process, it turns out, matters more than results. Process, it turns out, if you're executing a process rigorously with focus at something that consumes you, in the doing of it, you change for the better. And as you change for the better, it enables you to do the work at a higher level, which changes you more. And so that by the time results start to come in, you're not the same frightened, fragile person you were at the beginning. You're a stronger person who knows they've put in the time and who's ready to deal with whatever fate then deals you. So, yes, um, rejection, disappointment, th those things can, can feel crushing in the instant even if you've prepared. But your resilience is... Uh, is so much greater and such a powerful tool because you've stacked this, it's muscle memory and it's intellectual, you've stacked this memory, this knowledge of the work that you put in. And that's something that can't be taken away, right? That's something that no gatekeeper, no authority, no judge in your sport, which is insane that I can't even fathom sort of giving to judges that kind of an authority. But all those... All of those voices, while they can affect your fate in the short term, in the moment, they can't actually stop you, what you realize, what I realize, they can't actually stop you from doing the work you want to do. Once you're in flight, in motion, you're moving. And so the, that was like the big realization to me was if I, if I just actually stack this stuff, I do this stuff, I will... I became a different person. Um, and so that when rejections started coming in, I could process them. I could, um, I could absorb them, deal with them, find a place to put them, and then find a way to use them as fuel to move forward. And I think it's so interesting because when you think of starting something new, and, and I think a lot of the battles that, that people face is the, the conflict between your own desires and hopes for yourself and what the collective of what society says is practical and what you should do. And I think people fall somewhere along a spectrum of being able to listen to that inner voice. And over time, it, it kind of gets crushed by the school system and expectations and parents and, and what we think we need to do. How does someone do? like you manage that when you've been in a system and rewarded for how well you were able to thrive in that system? Like, how do you... How do you come out the other end of that and 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 manage this question for yourself of can I thrive outside of a system? Do I want to? Do I want to find another system? It's so funny because I've reflected back and I think, you know, a lot of the things that you talk about, about like finding your creativity and your your pursuit as an artist being incredibly fulfilling and and that took overcoming fear to do so. But what's on the other side is just so rewarding. But for me is like that 
that sense of not caring what anyone thought and following my passion and being a complete tomboy at the age of five, not being able to sit still, was what got me into sports. And it was the only thing I could focus on because I had major ADHD. I went through three different elementary schools. I was always doing cartwheels when I was supposed to be standing in line and listening for my name during roll call. And and what happened 10 years into my sport was it became this vehicle for approval, right? It's like I was sure. I was this wild kid. I didn't quite fit in, but I wasn't socially aware that I wanted to fit in. And I think as you become a teenager, you want acceptance and you want to be included and you want to be valued. And then all of a sudden, sports was this, this platform for me to do so. And so later, I think it changed how what got me into it and who the person I was in the beginning wasn't the person I was when I came out of it, which was very much conditioned by what can I say that's politically correct? Yeah, Will sure. the media like me? Will the judges like me? Will they like this costume or this choreography? And it was very much you're molding yourself for a public yeah. as well as trying to excel and, and being the best that you Have can Have you be. been able to cast that off? I'm definitely working on that. But it's decades of conditioning really, really shape you. And I think that's why— what you say is so inspiring. It's like quitting your job isn't a solution because you actually haven't done anything, right. right? It's the beginning. And then when you realize you have that power to begin, then you realize what you're afraid of is actually failing. And, and that's what I'm very curious about. As you begin doing it, you change as a person. And so failure doesn't seem so scary. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, we all talk in absolutes. Somehow when we get microphones in front of us, we talk in absolutes. But so, yes, it becomes much easier to deal with failure, to bear failure. But failure still sucks. Like, you know, you know I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. and So I don't want to speak in absolutes. Like, yes, um, I became impervious to the pain of failure. What it really is about is like in weightlifting when, you know, you're tearing down the muscle – and as the more you do it, the quicker the muscle is able to, like, tear down and then rebuild. And also, you know then this pain that I'm feeling. It's real pain, mm -hmm. but it's going to lead to this very – this reward that I'm really clear on. So, look, still, if uh, I write something or do something and I get negative feedback on it, for one – for an instant – you create from this place that's uh, the childlike place in you, this innocent place, this place that has some wonder. And so in the very beginning, you are each time you're like that kid. And so uh, negative feedback can hurt. It's just that because you've done all this work and you know you can keep doing the work, that's all it is. It's a bee sting. It's not a shark bite. It's a bee sting. And so you you know, all right, that's going to be better in, a, in 10 minutes and I'll move on. That's what happens the more you sort of, the more reps you get. I mean, it is. It is like the more reps you get at trying, the more reps you get at dealing with the word no or dealing with rejection or your own limitations, the more you, you find the inner resolve. Do you think identity is part of it? Like, I athletes that maybe are doing something since five and that's who they are and they're good at it. And and so any failure is really like an indict a personal indictment that they fell short and they're not good enough because the self is the athlete. Yeah. Well I'm a golf fanatic and and you know I, I watch golf uh, a lot. And I I mean you just watch 
these guys talk about why they missed a putt. And almost always it's because either there was a misread or because the ball hit something on its way to the cup. You know, it's never I pushed it or I pulled it because they they you have the need to sort of get that all out of your head so you can go on and do the next much better to have just kind of, well, I thought it was going to break left, but then to say, I got really nervous when I pulled the club back. And so when I came through, it was open. And so I pushed it. Right. Um, but you're identical. Like if you have a new project and you're some, and, and you, everyone's like, I think it's a terrible idea. No, no, no. Is it instantly like well, I got to move on or do you kind of really well, no, I was believe speaking, it? I mean, the way I'm speaking to that is like these golfers are like their identity is I'm a great golfer. If I'm a great golfer, I, don't make I didn't push the ball or pull it. Um, instead, there was just a, I, I thought there was more break in it than there was, you know, in the putt. Um, well, I would say this. Identifying as a writer, a storyteller, once you declare it, and then once you declare it, and that doesn't mean getting a tattoo that says writer, once you declare it by doing the writing, then it does enable, it, it does sort of defang people who look at you and say, that's not very good. Because you're, you've decided you're the thing. So, you know, my first, our first script, Dave and my first script, our first script, uh, was rejected by all these agencies in Hollywood. And I remember all the rejections. I remember what everybody said, these agencies. But then the script sold. And then the two days later, all those same agencies, the same agents themselves called us and all had different excuses for why it wasn't their fault that they passed. You know, I didn't read it. Um, a kid who I hired to read, my assistant read it. Uh, I was busy that day and just gave it a glance, you know. So I it, I realized right away, oh, these people, they 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 don't really know anything and they're I can't I can't invest in their judgment. You know, I think about it with athletes all the time. You know, I was somebody who always loved McEnroe and I always was on his side. Um and I was always against the judges, right? I always felt like I'm with the person inside the arena, like Roosevelt talked about, Theodore Roosevelt. You know, I'm, I'm with the, the person. The man in the arena. Yeah, I'm okay. with the man in the arena. I really am, you know? Um, or the woman in the arena. The person in the arena trying, not the person uh, telling Serena that she footfaulted. I'm with Serena. You know You know what I mean? Yeah, it just it's a— understanding of the the courage it takes yes. to go in there, to make mistakes, to have people that don't have that same courage to step in the arena, but have the courage to criticize, and yeah. especially yeah. on Twitter, criticize anonymously. and Totally. And that doesn't mean, like, so, again, not to speak in absolutes, so even knowing the gatekeepers don't know anything, that doesn't mean I'll ignore every word they say. That means I'll look to see if four people react the same way to a script or a movie or a show, I'll look at what that criticism is, but I'll do it when my emotions are calmed down. I'll do it dispassionately. And then if there's something of value in there, meaning something that I can act on, something that makes sense to me, um, a way that I can improve the thing that I've either shot or written, 
I'll do it. Um, and I'll be really grateful that I got that feedback. But what I won't do is have a knee-jerk reaction that says, oh, who did I think I was to stick my head up out of the ground that I could be something special or I could do something special? Of course their judgment is right. I'm a nothing. Uh, I should just go away and never create again, which is unfortunately the way most of us react to criticism. We feel that way and then we either lash out um, out of anger or we crumble out of, out of sadness, depending on how we process that emotion of rejection. Mm-hmm. And so I just try to train myself to breathe, wait, consider it, act or not act based on what I really think, and then move on. It's very hard to do that. Yeah. And, and so Serena, I'm sure after that match, three weeks later, went and looked at the tapes and, and was like, did my foot move a little over the line there? Should I, how can I address that? Like, you know what I mean? Uh, in the moment, of course, you're aflame. But Seeing it as constructive, like to, to better you in the future. Yeah. I want to go to billions because obviously that's a current phenomenon and is just such such an interesting topic and yet the characters are so alive and lines are so blurred of of who you're rooting for and 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 what it's about and and it made me just think back to kind of a bird's eye view of of what you wanted to to do with this is this is this like a, a narrative of of human values or of the american system and and it's it's when you write is there some kind of internal struggle you're dealing with that you're trying to put to words through like the voices of these characters well, some parts of some parts of that are best not for me best not overthought i will say dave and i are definitely looking at america's relationship to power influence and money we're definitely looking at the corrosive impact of that kind of wealth. We're looking at the rewards of that kind of wealth and power. We're looking at why, as Americans, we tend to celebrate people who exhibit characteristics like verbal acuity, um, charisma, wealth, and why we celebrate that more then we celebrate qualities of character like kindness and empathy. So we're looking at all that stuff, but mostly we're trying to make a show that's entertaining and that leaves you asking yourself questions. We're not trying to hit you over the head with our opinions on these things. What we're trying to do is create a compelling drama that's also funny and that uh, completely entertains you and afterwards, it's hard to fall asleep and you're thinking about what happened and you're thinking about your reactions. And maybe then you form your own opinion about the kinds of people depicted on the show. And why do you think, why do you think that is or why do you think this topic kind of struck your interest? Why do we value, quote unquote, winners? Where did you grow up? I grew up in California. I was born in L.A. Right. So you were in L.A. and I was born on Long Island. And... When you're born in one of those places, you notice the way often men with power move through the world. And you see the way everyone, the deference people show to them. You see the way they act in a restaurant. You see the way that they act at a stoplight. 
you're you're aware of the kind of gravitational pull that they have. And Dave and I just grew up thinking about that a lot. And then watching the way in which money was celebrated in the country. And I, I think a combination of those things. And then, I mean, then specifically the powers that a U.S. attorney has, which are enormous. He has, they have enormous amounts of discretion. And then when we looked at these billionaires, they live like nation states. And we realized you could have a king and a nation state and put them at war against one another. And you could kind of create a Shakespearean construct out of it. So, but I would say we'd been thinking about people like this in various ways for a long time. People who are able to self-mythologize and who use the power of story about themselves to convince themselves and people around them to look at them a certain way. I mean, that's at play in everything from rounders to solitary men to billions. And it's something that's long animated us. And I don't know if you know where a show goes when when you begin writing, if you have this endpoint and, and this vision or... Is this perhaps a story like of an Icarus if you if you fly too high? Or is this is this a story of values and emptiness that maybe you can attain all those things that we think will give us happiness, but they don't? I'll say it's all in there for you to decide okay. what it is. I, I'll never I can't it, those things are all in there for you to pick from and decide about. Because uh, Dave and I don't want to sit in judgment in a way of the characters quite in that way. Um, because to write them, when you're writing them, you have to understand how they see the world. And so, Axe would never think of himself as Icarus. You know, you know what I mean? So, certainly all that stuff, all those myths, all the things that have come before are in your mind. You know, if, you're, if you are going to live a life of doing this stuff, you're, you're reading and watching a lot of things. And, you're, you're thinking about where the important myths intersect with the story that you're telling. And I want to, I guess, broaden and back out a little bit from, from Billions and, and try to understand how you found your, your writing voice and how you chose fiction versus nonfiction. And if you ever, if like your process of self-discovery with what you wanted to do with your life, what would be fulfilling— if these were things that you wanted to verbalize through through an art form, right, for, for other people to share. Yeah, yeah, you know, what I all I really knew. And I ask you this because I think a lot back to to, to Salinger and to Chekhov and, and how they write these characters, these stories, and put these existential human yeah. questions into their work. Well, for sure, you you put into your work what you're thinking about and what you're feeling. I mean, Dave and I were two guys in our late 20s wondering about what we'd have to risk and sacrifice to live a dream that seemed irrational. And, I mean, that's definitely what Rounders is about. And um, and our obsession with poker, uh, which is a lifelong obsession for me and was really at a height then. So, yeah, you put that stuff in. I mean um, – I write essays, you know, I've published a bunch of essays and so I, I, I definitely, one of the really fun things about being um, a successful writer or, uh, you know, a writer who has an audience is that I get asked, basically if I'm interested in something, I can find a way to write about it and someone will want me to. Mm -hmm. So that 
you know, if I want to write about golf, Sports Illustrated will send me the Masters and the PGA. And so I'm able to sort of do any of that stuff as it really interests me. But part of what you have to do, learn to do, and I mean, you know, the discipline and rigor you had to, that, that you had to lean into, so you understand this better than anybody, but, you know, you got to say no all the time. Like, so if someone asked me today, like, how many projects are you working? It's like, well, we're really working on billions because if I want this thing to be great and I want it to go on. It takes everything. And I want it to top last season. I, I can't really do much else. I can do my podcast because I it, doing the podcast, having these conversations enriches me as an artist. But so like the masters I did because that was the season had ended um, and I could go, we were in post-production and I could go do it. And same with the PGA the, when I did that this year, I covered the PGA and it was in, in New York. Um, and then if I'm particularly angry about the New York Knicks, I can write about the Knicks and someone will publish that. So I have these outlets for that stuff. Um, but I love movies and television and I love collaborating. So the the great and incredible thing about what I've been lucky enough to do is David and I come up with an idea. We write something, but then we get to work with people like Matt Damon and Edward Norton and Michael Douglas and George Clooney and Brad Pitt and Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis, you know, Maggie Siff and Asia Kate Dillon. Like it's um, – and then they take your work and they elevate it. And then you watch their work and that inspires you to do something that elevates what they're doing. And you're, you're in this incredible um, – what starts as like um, this very personal private thing becomes something that you share with these other artists and it ratchets all of it up. And so as soon as we started doing this, it became – Look, we also, I would say, we wrote Rounders and Rounders got made. And that was our first thing that we wrote together. And so it was clear to us that we weren't crazy and that we had an ability at this. And we were living what seemed like what seemed like a dream to other people. And so, of course, we were going to keep going at it. When I was 40, I did stand-up comedy for a year and a half too because that was another one of those things where it was like, gosh, I'm really scared to do this. Every time I walk into a comedy club, I have this weird sensation of – watching, but at the same time watching myself and daring myself to do it. I did that for a year and a half. I got what I needed out of it. Now I can walk into a comedy club, watch comedians. I'm so happy and I have no sense of this thing not tried. Um, and so I'll always push and I'll always try to take an honest accounting of where and how I'm settling and then I'll try not to settle. Um, and I also, and this kind of thing is always hard to say, it, it always sounds, when I hear it, 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 it often can sound uh, forced or like you're just kind of um, saying it in a compulsory way, like the figure eights. But, like, you know, the other thing is my family. I've married the right person at a very young age, and we have these kids. And so, like, anytime I can be – or my kids are 23 and 19 now. So, like, anytime I can hang with them – I'm, that's basically what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this work and I'm going to hang with them and I'm going to, that's sort of the way in which I've drawn a, a circle around my existence. I want to touch on the idea of resistance sure. and yeah. your morning routine because I think even though you're a creative, you've 
you're so incredibly structured and disciplined. And I'm always in awe when you got up at, what was it, five every early. morning to yeah. write rounders before you went to your day we got job. got up early, yeah, roll rounders early in the morning. And even though I was a figure skater, I never got up early. So anyone Are that gets serious? up really early. <laughs> I had a, a high school girlfriend who was a, a competed at a high level, not your level, but a high level. And she would be in the rink before school every morning. I, I tried that, you know, at the age of 10, and I just wasn't really awake that early. And then I was homeschooled by the time I was 12, and, and it ended and it solved that. So, so I, when was your rink time? I would be training from maybe 8.30 to 1 p.m. And you would do school after that? I was homeschooled, Homeschool, But basically. I'm saying you would do your schooling yeah, do, after that? Basically, it was ballet, and then Pilates, and then physical therapy, and then homework in the car between all these places, and then at night. But anyone that gets up very early, and anyone that— that multitask, I think something as an athlete at a high level, you're like, this has to be done at the expense of everything else. And so the idea of saying, no, I can just, I can carve out time. Even you're like, everyone has 20 minutes a day. That time you took to go to Starbucks and back, you could have been writing. That's so true. It is true. And I think it's important to remind people and for them to hold themselves well, accountable. Yeah, I mean, now, of course, 22 years on of writing every day. Morning pages and you meditate. Every day, I, yes, I meditate every morning. I do three longhand pages um, of morning pages just like Julia Cameron describes in The Artist's Way. Um, I do cardio like five to six days a week because otherwise it would be 500 pounds. Um, but that, all, I will say, taking a long walk or doing an hour of cardio also allows me to get into this headspace. Um, the endorphins and the sort of, I don't know, don't you, I still find like if I exercise, the clarity I have afterwards is different than like almost anything else. And so I do try to do these things. That's why I get up early because if I'm going to be in the writer's office at 930 and I want to have gone to SoulCycle and I'll have wanted to go do my morning pages and meditate, I have to back out. Is it two time. hours or what yeah, is it? Yeah, probably. Okay. I have I have respect, <laughs> serious respect for that. I have something I need to work in more regularly. Uh, I want. Do you do cardio every day? I do now? yoga or I jog. Right. And you know, over the years, I've dislocated shoulders, worn out the cartilage in my hips. I have a torn meniscus. Of Everything's course. like I have a torn somewhat wonky. <laughs> so I that's do why a I don't left. run. But I really want to yeah. get. I like the the one motivation I have to lose weight is to run. Like because I love Soul Cycle and um, I love. Spinning, and I, I love when the I go to a, a teacher who has like the same musical taste that I do, but, but there's nothing like running five miles, even slowly. Yeah, the endorphins you get, and I, I like to run Sunset West Side Highway, yeah, and then just stretch the out on the pier, and it's like sky. You know, it's it's such a privilege to get to see some sky. Yeah, so sometimes I've been exercising at the end of the day now, and that's also I I mostly always did in the morning. But there's something about actually at the end of the day as a way to sort of like Decompress. let yourself go and get back to yourself. That's cool too. But I think it's it's very important to realize that even if as a creative, the the element, like as Stephen Pressfield says, of showing up every well, day. Yeah, I want to hit what you, you asked about resistance. So resistance is the word that Stephen Pressfield came up with for whatever's keeping you from doing the work that you hold most high. So for someone, it might be writing. For someone else, that might be exercising, right? Mm -hmm. That getting to the gym the, is the thing they put off or they find excuses not to do. Whatever in your mind is the highest purpose. But that, and, and the thing that you find yourself scared to do, what's happening is you're dealing with resistance. And so the ways that I combat that are, first of all, the morning pages. For me, it's what tips my subconscious out and lets me start 
sort of getting into a state of flow, but also practicing transcendental meditation, those two things, and just getting something down every day, just doing some writing every day. Because for me, the pain was so great when I wasn't writing, the feeling of being a failure, the feeling of not living up to my potential, the feeling that I had an ability to share some part of myself that other people would get something out of. And I was not capable of getting it from somewhere inside of me out, it really did feel like a kind of death. And so anything I can do to avoid feeling that way is worth it. Certainly. I I know what you mean. Shifting a little bit more to, I guess, lessons you've learned over kind of a lifetime of, you know, working in the music industry, shifting to finding this creative pursuit, becoming a very successful writer, and perhaps what you've learned over the last 20 years and, and ways that you've thought about yourself and the world that have, have shifted. And, and one thing that has shifted significantly for me is understanding the difference between happiness and success. And I'm very curious if for you those are one thing or if you've come to see those as a separate things. Well, let's define our terms because success, it, you, it, in order to feel successful, I need to feel like I'm on some kind of a path toward fulfillment. So it's all one thing. I don't see those things as separate. I mean, happy is a different word. Happy. I guess some uh, happy people Happy is maybe yeah. a fleeting, like happiness just is, some people are just born happy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um but but feeling like you have a greater purpose and like um, a mission and then being on the path toward that mission is what so i learned to define success by like have i in certain ways i'm very simple so have i spent time with people i love have i written something have i meditated have i done some exercise if i've done all that i've had a successful day That's just a successful day no matter what else happens. And I've tried to train myself to remember that. So you've always had a much healthier view of success than most of society. Not always. I'm saying I I made – no, I I had to make a choice to view the world that way, especially in a Hollywood career. In a Hollywood career, um, you could have somebody who – acted like your friend, then didn't call you for two years, then you had some kind of success, and they call you as though they'd been calling you every week. And so in order to not feel like you're in a little boat getting rocked everywhere on the waves, you, I felt I had to learn to not allow those outside voices to be the final judgment. Of success. Of success. So I had to come up with ways to define it for myself. Of course, and again, like I don't want to paint a picture um, like I'm so evolved that – it doesn't make a difference to me that David and I have been lucky enough to have um, a, a hit show that has cultural resonance. That makes all that a lot easier. Anyone who says that having some commercial success doesn't make life easier is totally lying to you. It makes things a lot easier. And But I'll say, you can't get that caught up in that either. Like, you have to appreciate it. You have to be willing to celebrate the wins You have to be willing to feel good about it. You can't need it. And you can't let it define you. you, It goes away. You can't need it. 
you can't let that be the only state in which you can personally thrive because you have to know that that's going away, right? All things go away. All things must pass. So you, you, you can appreciate it. You can be like, well, this is awesome. And I, I have moments of it. You know, every year when I walk onto the set for the first time, and I'm with my actors. We're actually at the first table read of every season, which happens a week before we start shooting. You, you read the first episode aloud. I make sure that I take a moment. Dave and I do this together and like absorb that all these people have come together and we're all doing this thing because of some work that we did um, when we were not in a position of great success in Hollywood, and, you know, commercials. Like we wrote this script. We enlisted all these people. People love the show. So I do remind myself of that, and I allow myself to feel really good about it. And every day when somebody tells me how much the show's meant to them or that it's brought them joy or that it's gotten them through a dark time, man, that's amazing. But if you're only living for that, you're setting yourself up for incredible lows, right? So you, you have to find ways through like acts of kindness with the people you love, through the ways in which you keep yourself on task, you have to find other ways to define what success means, I think. I think that's the biggest work for Olympians. Sure, of course. Because it's all—it's not even your choice to step away from a career. You usually get aged out, you get injured, and what you've spent decades striving for that you think will bring you happiness and completion it ends and it passes and it's behind you. And then who are you and what are you good at and what are you valued for? And, and so this well, is especially for question. a figure skater who you have a period of time where you are the center of conversation for the whole country. And you're for a kid. For the world. You're a kid and yes, that shapes I mean, you. That's, for the yeah. world, but really, but for your country, mm-hmm. right, you're the thing that we're all watching and we put a lot of emotion into you and you can um, you can feel that right and so i'm sure when that dissipates it must be shocking at first because i think i think on a team sport you have a sense of camaraderie but i think in a solo sport this achievement this vehicle is your everything that you, you know you put it all into and then one day it's like I always thought the 2006 Olympics, end of February. Like, I can't imagine the day after. It just doesn't seem possible. It's like the same way you kind of know that we're all going to die, but you can't really imagine it happening. And then you find, you know, I found myself on the podium waking up the next day, and it's like, it's now, you know what? what? And I think that's why I really resonated with your path and your inquiry and self-reflection, because I've spent much of the past decade doing just that and figuring out, what am I interested in? What am I allowed to do? Yeah, what am will I on I the be other side at? of it? You, I hope you give yourself a lot of room, though, to change your mind and to just kind of be. It does. It takes time, though, to, to rewire. And in some ways, it's wonderful because you're exposed to so much. I attended Columbia starting at the age of 26 right. and just loved it. I did all the reading and extra reading and and getting to move to New York and have this this really, really full life. But... But I think something when I talk to fellow Olympians that have retired, we all reminisce about like that moment when everything was just so clear. It might have been really difficult and nerve-wracking, but it was so clear and, and everything was was unified. But again, I think it's This these is chapters. why athletes hang on, right? 
for such a long time because the you know then the there's a great moment in in Moneyball where they say to this player they're trying to get out of high school they say you know at some point uh, you don't get to play the 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 boys game anymore right no one will tell you when you don't know when that is but it happens to everyone but but you're still able to and you can see why people want to keep I mean honestly it's hard for recreation I play basketball four days a week for most of my life and then at some point in my early 40s I mean all the way into my 40s but some point in my 40s it was like I'm a, I can't the work I'd have to do to keep playing basketball I'd have to spend hours a day trying to keep myself in a place where I could play and still like a, and like that was sad for me to not play basketball like to not play basketball a lot is painful and it meant nothing I mean it's it was just a very personal thing it's just Ide- a thing I love part of your identity. totally yeah. and yeah and gave me certain things right it it gave me like I'm I'm someone who loves to play sports this is I relate to I mean I talking to you I would never say I'm a good athlete but like I'm a capable athlete I can I have very good hand eye I can throw and catch which is a big separator in life I can't do that <laughs> right that's funny <laughs> but you know what I mean like I'm a, I'm I have good hand eye so that is when you're doing things that require that, the ability to focus on only that and nothing. You know, when you're playing hoop, you're just – and it's going well. And you're in a game. You know, the rest of the world just disappears. And you're able to that, have that kind of hyper presence. And that's a gift that being a competitive athlete, you must have had your whole life. And then suddenly – I mean, I guess when you went on tour, you have that when you're performing, right? But it's different. But then when you finally— Performing is is very different than competing, right? Because it's the one moment of judgment, like the moment you spend preparing the, you know, either for the next Olympic cycle or four years down the road. Is it also because when you're performing, the the tasks that you give yourself to do aren't as hard? They're easier, and it's almost like a Broadway show. You go up every night, curtain goes up, it's it's makeup, it's—you know, it's—you're not not competing for something. Was it fun or not so fun? It was definitely fun, I'd say, for the first few years, and then it, it becomes a little bit of like a groundhog day where you're doing the same thing. You spend your life in the bowels of an arena, uh, yeah. which, again, it's amazing to see the world. And then there was nothing the at world. stake when you were going out to skate. You didn't—you you, you had to—did you have to, like, trick yourself into remembering what people paid to come? Like, did you have to trick yourself into trying to do the— Well, every—like, per- some people are just competitors, some people are just performers, and some people are a mix. There was— something nerve-wracking but incredible about being a competitor and just the stakes are so high, you know, yes. the ups and downs. On another level, it's it's amazing to perform. And, you know, you've got spotlights and the, the fans are there because they love you. And it's, sure. it's not about what's at stake. It's about skating and performing for for the love of skating and for connecting and with And so the that crowd. did float you for a while emotionally? Like that was good for a while? Yeah, I, I, th- I would say for a few years I really enjoyed it. And then I, I was— thinking that the world had to be bigger and there were other things yes, that, I, yes. that I had to tackle. Well, I want to end with uh, two more questions, and okay. this has been so incredible thus far. But one is whether it's a particular book or experience or just advice that you would want to share with the audience. I've found that there's been certain moments in my life or books that I've read that have shifted my perspective on how I see the world. Um, the Tao Te Ching, Man's Search for Meaning were two of Victor those Frankel, such books. Victor yeah, amazing. Um, Yes, there's a—I'll uh, say two nonfiction books, uh, and they are The Dip by Seth Godin. Seth's genius, one of my closest friends, but genius. And The Dip is the best examination of when when it makes sense to quit 
and when you should press on. It's a brilliant book, and I, I think every and it's short and it's amazing. And then um, my favorite living author is Haruki Murakami, and his book "What I Talk About When I Talk About Running" is an incredible book about being an artist and about being uh, trying to get the most out of yourself physically as an athlete. And then if I were going to recommend, I'm a big believer in in the value of reading fiction because fiction stirs us in a way that nothing else does and it unsettles us. And when we're unsettled like that, we have to find um, some resolution to that being unsettled. And I think it gives a tremendous opportunity for growth. Um, and I love this book, City of Thieves by David Benioff. Uh, I could probably give it to 100 people and all of them have thanked me. So um, – those I would recommend those books. And yeah, Pressfield's War of Art. If you want to be a if you want to be an artist and you're having a hard time being an artist, Stephen Pressfield's War of Art. Good. I will I have got to read three of those. <laughs> so I'll yeah. add that to my list. And the last question I ask everyone on the podcast is if you have to look back on your life, like what would be your Olympic moment? Well, the first time I'll take all I'll answer this only on the career level because all the other things would just be um all family stuff. Um but on the a career level, you know, I'll tell you, actually finishing the rounder script, like actually committing with David, we're going to meet every morning. We're going to write this script. We're going to do – we're going to give everything we have to it even though the likelihood of success is very small. And, and it was really hard, you know, um, it was really hard to write it and to make it good and to show up every day even though there were days that the writing was bad and that we couldn't find the story. And, you know, when we got to the end and rewrote it and had our script and it was something that we had done and nobody could take away from us, um, you know, that was... That was running through flames and getting to the other side. And uh, as I said, that's when I was different from who I was before. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's just it's not even about getting it accepted or no. produced. Doing. It's setting a goal for yourself, being accountable, following A hard through. goal yeah. and actually doing it, you know? Oh, thank you so much. I think the audience is going to really love this. It's been one of my favorite conversations. And You're awesome. I'm so you. glad you're doing this. Thanks. Yes, Sasha. and I have to just like end this podcast by saying that you were a huge kind of factor in getting me going. And I asked you questions on how do I do this and how do I interview and how do I start. So thank you for mentoring. Totally my pleasure. And thanks for the Olympic sweatshirt. I wear it all the time. And people look <laughs> at me like, you do not look like an Olympian, sir. <laughs> thanks. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.